welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. During our program, we continue to cover a variety of hot topics in the sports medicine world and more. Welcome everyone to this episode of six to eight weeks. I'm Drew Lansdowne and joined by Dr. Brian Feely and Dr. Nirav Pandya. For today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Jay Iyengar, who's a shoulder and elbow surgeon in Stockton, California. He's also the program director for the new St. Joseph's Medical Center Orthopedic Surgery Residency Program. Dr. Iyengar was a UCSF orthopedic surgery resident after undergrad at UCLA and medical school at UCSF. He then completed shoulder elbow fellowship training at Columbia University, where he was an assistant team physician for the New York Yankees. Dr. Iyengar is the founder of the Stockton Shoulder Institute, current team physician for the University of the Pacific Tigers, adjunct assistant professor at Toro University, and adjunct clinical instructor at University of Pacific. A lot of titles there. Jay was also one of my mentors during my residency, so it's great to see him back on the podcast. And thanks for joining us, Jay. Just to kick it off, starting and running an orthopedic surgery residency is a huge undertaking. Recently, you've kicked off this new program. What made you want to start this program? Thanks for the intro and thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. But I think if you asked our faculty group as a whole, the one common answer you'd get really comes back to the shortage of physicians in our area. I live near Stockton, California, Central Valley of California. And we have a pretty critical physician shortage across our community in all specialties, you know, and I, I can tell you about this in sort of theoretical terms, but to put it into some numbers, if you, uh, if you look at San Francisco County, it compares roughly equivalently to San Joaquin County, which is our county in terms of population catchment. Last I counted, there's about 250 orthopedic surgeons practicing in San Francisco city and county, and we had less than 25. You know, that tenfold difference is, is a big access to care issue. And we kind of realized here is that if we didn't take time to train our own physicians, we were never going to address this shortage in kind of any kind of a meaningful way. So, and that gets back to some of the numbers. Uh, statistically, residents tend to practice within about 60 miles of where they trained. And so that's just what, what the numbers will tell you. So if we wanted to have any kind of impact on this problem, we had to take the time to train our own physicians. I think you'd get that one answer from everybody. And then everyone has their own reasons, I think, too, for why they wanted to be involved. So Jay, you mentioned access to care. Are you, and the San Joaquin Valley, for people that don't know, is a little bit more rural than some of the other parts of California. It sits in the Central Valley, so south of Sacramento, and largely has a Spanish-speaking population. When you're looking at recruiting residents into your program or the other programs in the area, are you looking for people who primarily have a Spanish-speaking background, are interested in learning Spanish? Or are you at this point taking anybody who's interested and hope that they pick up some Spanish as part of their training? It certainly doesn't hurt if you know how to speak Spanish. I think your the clinic day would go a little faster. You know, in, in my personal practice, about 35 to 40 percent of my patients have Spanish as a first or second language. And so, yeah, it's a huge advantage. I, I don't know that it's a requirement. I think that anyone who's really interested in, in serving an underserved community, I think you'll figure out the way the logistics of how to do that. Even a language barrier can be addressed through interpreter services or whatever. I think if the desire is to serve a community that needs you, those are logistical barriers that can be overcome. So it doesn't hurt, but not a requirement. How long did it take you to go from seriously deciding that you were going to start this program to getting your first group of residents started in the program? The first talks about this program started, it was right during the early days of the pandemic. It was like in March of 2020, which was also an interesting overlay to this whole process. But so between kind of the initial talks about the program and actually matriculating our first residents was a little over three years to get that process going. And yeah, it was an interesting process. And I can tell you all about it uh, you know, in gory detail if you'd like, but <laughs> that was the timeline. 
Your first year class of residents just started this year. Has the experience been what you expected from the start or have there been any surprises, unexpected challenges that have come up? I think the biggest surprise that comes with a new program is the residents don't have senior level residents as kind of peer mentors. And I think I underestimated or forgot how much I learned from the residents above me, you know, the, the senior junior senior residents when you're an intern. And so much of that peer teaching is how you learn to be a doctor. It doesn't necessarily come directly from the attendings. And when you don't have those layers above you, I think everything has to come either from osmosis through other programs or directly from the attending. And so, you know, even simple things like writing orders or writing fluids or, you know, admission orders or diet orders, those are things that you were probably taught by, you know, your second or third year residents above you. Yeah, me. Hopefully not me, but... Those things don't exist. And I think that that's the hardest part about starting a new program is we have to fill in those gaps as the faculty. And uh, a lot of us have forgotten how to do fluid orders and diet orders. So uh, there's a little bit of a knowledge gap there that we have, we have to cover ourselves. How did you feel, you know, with the faculty, obviously are important in the program. How did your fellow faculty feel about kind of shifting how they were doing things from kind of more of a, a private practice model to to teaching and having residents come? How did that conversation go? Again, getting back to this whole process of how it started. Initially, the hospital had approached us back in 2018 when they started other residency programs in primary care, and they asked us if we wanted to start an ortho program, and the answer at that time was no. We, we just didn't really feel that we had the substrate to run our own orthopedic program. And then some things shifted. I think that we got a little bit more interested in education. We recruited some younger faculty or partners that were oriented towards that. We also continued to recruit in specialties that we didn't have. And then two years later, the answer when the hospital came back to us was, was yes, I think we have you know, the right group of people that want to do this, that are interested in doing this for good educational reasons. And then it was sort of kind of a process of putting the pieces together. The people that ended up saying yes to it, myself included, I think really wanted to do this. And, and that, that, made it, that made it helpful because when all the bumps and bruises came along the way, there were, the intent was still to, that we wanted to do this as a group. It sounds like from the people that have started, you've done a great job so far. What's something that was an unexpected challenge in starting the residency, particularly in the teaching aspect of it? I think the hardest thing about teaching is teaching itself. And that's not that's not being sarcastic. It's the whole mechanism of didactic learning and curriculum that, you know, at UCSF, for example, was so baked into the culture. So we, we didn't have any of that. We had to create that from scratch. And so you know, as you know, Ryan, the ACGM requires a lot of formal didactic structure. It cannot be anything that's off the cuff. And so creating that from nothing, I think that was the hardest part, all the conferences and all the teaching and the lectures. I think that has been, that has been, is going to be the continued challenge for the next few years, getting this off the ground. Jay, in looking back to residency, I'm not sure if you remember at that point, mm-hmm. what you thought was the most important part of a residency program or the key components. What did you think going through residency and then from where you sit now in trying to you know get this program up and going it's hard because it's been a little while since I was in residency and your memory tends to shift subtly over time but the things i remember best about residency were some of the kind of the mentorships and the personal relationships and the people that took the time to, to teach you and really give you kind of that real perspective on how they're going through clinical problems not necessarily what you learn from a book but really understanding how problems are approached and the people that did that in a kind of a real way, I think are the mentors that you remember forever. And conversely, you know, I think at UCSF, I just remember making a lot of PowerPoints as a resident. I think I spent half my residency making PowerPoint presentations. Half the time, I didn't have time to actually learn the material because I was making the actual PowerPoint. 
And so that to me represented an inefficiency. It was a lot of time spent on creating this content that probably could have been better served by just talking about cases or just doing case-based learning or whatever. So I, I think remembering what I liked fondly and then remembering what I viewed as a pain point and trying to use that as, as a springboard for how we design a curriculum here is making it more interactive and case-based. I'm old. I'm pre-PowerPoint where we used to have True. to run through the <laughs> hospital and find the films. But you have this amazing opportunity to start a program from scratch, get rid of PowerPoints, yet still maintain some of the didactics that are the basics of orthopedic surgery. In terms of setting up this idealized program that's run under the same iron fist that you use at home on your children, what have you prioritized in, in terms of setting up the program that makes this different from a quote unquote traditional orthopedic program? Yeah, and, and I don't want to pretend like we're disruptors here. I think we I, I use the UCSF model a lot for how we <laughs> template things because we got a pretty good education. But the the things that we were trying to do differently. So uh, nowadays, especially, so much of the didactic content is available through online platforms. Whether you're talking about the Rock curriculum through AOS or the Ortho Bullets has their own curriculum, so you don't have to reinvent that wheel on on having a lecture PowerPoint for every topic. That a lot of that can be done through technology, and so really then you take the time that the faculty have with residents and you try to extract maximum value out of those hours, which is, to me, it's case-based learning and talking about kind of those 50-50 decisions and, and, and things that help you really understand how the subtleties of how clinical decisions are made. And the content you can learn on your own time and you can do the questions on your own time and you can do the lecture online at, you know, at home. Trying not to reinvent the wheel of what's out there and, and kind of maximize what you can't get on an online platform. Maybe to follow up on that, how do you help ensure that people are taking full advantage of those online resources? And then how do you also you know, evaluate their progress with them, like to make sure that they're acquiring and retaining the information that they're going through? We're two months into this. So I don't want to make any answers here that make it sound like I've been doing this for a while. But, you know, you have to ask them again in five years when our first residents take their boards and if they all pass, and I, I did a great job. But, you know, sar sarcasm aside, I, I think that most of these platforms now do have some monitoring feature of you can kind of assess a resident's performance and competency over time and deficiencies can be identified through kind of, uh, you know, AI based learning. But I think some of it also is just uh, in real time when you ask residents simple questions in conference and you see what, how they're answering, you get a sense of what their ability to synthesize this particular topic is. And so it's a combination of, you know, theoretical knowledge and gauging that through some of these platforms and then face-to-face -face learning. How, are they able to apply these concepts and give you a meaningful answer to a simple clinical question? And if they can't, then we haven't done a great job of teaching them. So there's other ways to, you know, obviously the OIT, the in-training exam is a way of kind of gauging where they are year to year. But even that, I don't think, gives you the full picture. I think it's, it's, you got to put it all together in, in multiple ways. Well, I'd ask you guys that, you know, in return. Obviously, this is my interview, but over time, I'd love to hear your perspectives on how do you figure out if a resident is getting there or not getting there? I think there are more and more tools that allow us to follow it. I think I really like the ABOS KSBs, which allow you to give real-time feedback, but then fill them out. And I think that's important because one, it forces the attendings to reflect a little bit and it forces the residents to make sure like, hey, I'm going to be prepared for this case, which they should be for all cases. But the reality is sometimes there's a spine case you just don't want to prepare for. But then they have the opportunity to say, hey, will you fill this out for me? so that I can feel like I'm doing my best. Even if you're a junior resident and your best means 
setting up and positioning and draping the patient correctly because those little things start adding up if you know how to do it. You get more, I don't want to say independence, but you get sort of guided independence and mentorship versus if, you, if you're really not doing the little things right, it's hard to really progress. Kind of a more global question for you, Jay, like as as residents are kind of, you know, medical students are going through and, and they're trying to find a program. What do you tell them that your program offers them? You know, there's obviously tons of orthopedic programs out there. What's unique to your program? or How do you, I won't say sell, but kind of propose the program to people who are coming through? I try to emphasize kind of what we are and what we are not. And what we are not, for example, is the UCSF or the Mayo Clinic. What we are is a community-based program that offers broad-based, strong subspecialty training across disciplines and a lot of clinical experience that goes with that. I think, you know, in particular, especially as a newer program, we don't necessarily rely on residents for labor. We don't run a service that relies on residents. So the service education balance is actually quite favorable, I think, to a especially initially to the first three or four classes, they can spend some of that time to work on educational endeavors. So that's part of it. The other part of it is I think that not having as many layers of, of residents and trainees, you get a lot of direct contact with faculty and you get to really have a kind of a, a mentorship type experience with our faculty through individual rotations, which I think grows pretty strong over time. And so that kind of personal kind of mentorship with faculty and having a community program where our focus is on, on doing good clinical work, I think it, in time can make you a pretty strong surgeon and pretty strong resident. That's what I try to sell them on. Obviously, there's a huge need for clinical work here too, so there's no shortage of work to do. So I think those are the things that we do well or we offer to do well and not trying to be a university program that we're not. It's really sticking to our guns. You guys are a community program. You still need to do research. Yet there was this interesting core article that came out probably about three years ago that said maybe research is not the right thing that we're teaching people because the quality of research isn't really judged anymore. There's so many journals we can publish in. Instead, we should be teaching residents how to critically evaluate literature, and maybe the ones that are interested in publishing are also going to publish because they were going to anyway. In your program, how do you address that research component where it's understandably also a little bit harder without the same resources to publish a variety of different things because you don't have that huge case volume that a 100-year-old institution has? That has been probably our biggest challenge, I think all the way across the board in some ways is duplicating some of those resources. And, and, you know, getting back to that core article, I remember that core article. I, I would agree with that pushback a little bit that I think the emphasis is too much on research where it should be kind of a, a culture of scholarly inquiry, just a culture of scholarship that is different than, than research publications. I think those are different things. And if you have a program with a good culture of scholarly activity, that doesn't necessarily mean they're publishing articles in JBJS. But to answer your question on more practical terms, the first thing that we did when we interviewed our first class of residents is that we then created a research resident program or kind of research fellow. And that was something I just had a meeting with our hospital CEO and our, our uh, ACGME DIO last week, kind of explained to them that this position, this research position is essentially mandatory at this point. I think it's very difficult to run an orthopedic program without having some mechanism by which you're doing clinical research studies and, you know, fostering that culture of education, even though it's optional, it's really not optional anymore. I think that's so important to the HGME that your institution has that perspective that you're not going to get by without it. So some of that is by creating some of these mechanisms, we're out there trying to find funding for this. That's, that's another thing I'm doing now is spending a lot of time talking to donors about, do you, you want to support our research endeavors? Not that we're going to recreate a 
formal basic science mechanism here in Stockton, but we certainly can do some good clinical translational research that you know applies to our communities and broad-based communities like ours. So I think it's an ongoing challenge. I think having a, a dedicated research fellow is a big part of that. And then using that mechanism to kind of foster research and QI projects is, is also part of it. But it, it may not be the exact same way that you guys do it. It, it may not be publications in big journals, it may just be local QI projects that help us take better care of our patients, which I think is still a culture of education and scholarship that sometimes gets glossed over. Great. And maybe we'll wrap up with this last question. Right now, you know, the medical students, they're finishing their away rotations, they're getting their applications together, getting ready to plan out where they're interviewing. What advice would you have for candidates at this point? And what do you think they should be focusing on? Again, I'm still somewhat new to this. But I think it's getting harder and harder to distinguish applicants from one another as more things are going towards pass-fail and even clinical grades and all these traditional metrics, which I didn't agree with a lot of them, like board scores that were used as, as filters are going away. So what we're left with is a lot of people look the exact same and everyone looks extremely qualified. I think you have to try to hone in on a few programs and maybe cultivate or develop some personal relationships or mentorships that can help navigate that process for you. So you know, if you can do an away rotation, at an institution, that's going to be your strongest ability to show that department kind of who you are. Or even if it's, you know, can you get in contact with some faculty and get involved in some projects? And and at least at that point, you're, you're more than just another applicant on, on paper. So I think it's becoming more important to try to cultivate some relationships with that program that you're really interested in so that when your application comes across the program director's desk, you're not just a name on a page. And I, I realize that's difficult, and it's particularly difficult now that in the post-pandemic era to do a bunch of ways. But whatever you can do to distinguish yourself, I think, is important. And then really, I think that those little things go a long way in kind of helping you stand out when it's time to apply. So that would be my one piece of advice. Great. Awesome. Well, NJ, we're excited to have your residents come rotate with us at Children's as well, too. So we'll kind of keep that connection very formalized as well. So that'll be be very exciting. Don't want to take up too much of your time. Obviously, you're very busy, but I um, want to thank you again for joining our podcast. We look forward to having your residents with us and kind of forging that UCSF connection again. And I encourage everyone to check out our podcast, Six to Eight Weeks, available on Amazon, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts, you can download and listen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. What do you think of this topic? Connect with us now. In addition to finding our contact form, you'll also find our social media links in our entire six to eight weeks episode archive. Help us grow our listenership by liking, subscribing, and sharing everywhere. We're eager to hear from you, and we'll be sending you more great thought-provoking content in less than six to eight weeks.